got bad news for you. Back everyone to the Jazz Jitsu podcast. I'm your host Jazz Ortiz, and today I have a good friend on. He has his master's in sports science. Will everyone welcome Paul De Gregorio? Did I pronounce that right? Yeah, close enough. De, De Gregorio is good. Okay, okay. Well, it's not the man. worst pronunciation I've heard. That's for sure. I knew when I first saw it, I was like, "Oh God, I'm going to murder this." <laughs> yeah, it's okay. It's all right. Do you get that often? I've gotten DiGiorno. Uh, DiGiorno? <laughs> yeah, I know. D DiGario. I mean, if I hear Paul D, I'm, you've got my attention. <laughs> they weren't even, the DiGiorno <laughs> Which was terrible. wasn't even <laughs> No, it's all right. It was terrible to be Paulie D because my friends would call me Paulie D, but then the Jersey Shore came out and it was awful being called Paulie D because then Paulie D, the character, it's kind of known as this like huge party animal and kind of a douche. So, Dude. and everybody loved calling me Polly D. So I tried moving myself away from that. And now I'm just Paul. Dude, <laughs> I want you to get a blowout now. See, this is how it starts. Spiky this hair. Is... <laughs> I want you to get super tan. Yeah, this is how it starts, man. And I'm actually a real Italian. You know, those guys probably have some Italian heritage, but those guys, I don't know. They they didn't they didn't do a lot of good for the Italian the other Italians in the world. You know what I mean? <laughs> they took the Italians mainstream. They did, but like not in a good way. They just yeah, kind of made us a laughing stock. Yeah. Dude. I don't know. I, I wasn't a big fan. Dude, that's gonna that's gonna that's gonna be your name on the on the podcast title. I'm just gonna put jazz featuring Pauly D. And everyone's gonna be like, oh shit, he got Polly D on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, it might get you a few more views. They'll there just be go. disappointed when I show up. <laughs> yeah, you'll just be like, really? Right. So how's life been, man? I know um it's good. I didn't tell the audience how we met. So me and Paul met um a while back. Uh when did you get to uh North Carolina? So uh end of August, early September. Okay. I came so- down. I came down for an internship with Elon University. It ended up not working out. So I ended up spending like basically the whole month of September down there just sort of in limbo. And that's where we met because while I wasn't doing anything, um, I was just doing jujitsu all the time. (laughs) And that's kind of lifestyle. I was unintentionally, Um, you know, as I was waiting for a COVID test to get into Elon, I was just shopping around jujitsu schools and going to as many as I could. And I think that's where I first met you. I was there and uh, I think I saw you came, come in, saw the purple belt. You're about my size. I got really excited because it's, it's always fun to train with, you know, higher level guys around my weight class. And uh, I think that's how we first met. Yeah, man. And uh, I was so excited because it's so hard to find people my size period. Yeah, it is. Whether they're lower level or higher level, like it's so hard to find. Right. It seems like everybody that does jujitsu is like 
200 pounds. <laughs> I know, man. It's ridiculous. And that's not even that big. I just think, you know, I'm 155 pounds uh, with shoes on. So I'm definitely not a bigger grappler. So it's nice to find someone a little bit smaller because chances are they're what you, what you lack in size, you have to make up for in technical ability. And I always, I always enjoy that back and forth, uh, that exchange of techniques. It's, that's what makes jujitsu fun. You know, I, I love a good scrap, but I, I really enjoy getting caught or catching somebody in something that I know was done technically that I know was, uh, well-timed, well-paced, well-placed, uh, as opposed to just run, you know, ramming my head through somebody, you know, and just like muscling my way to a submission, you know? Right. So that's, that's one of the main things I love about jujitsu is sort of the back and forth game. Right. Right. And it feels, it feels much better the next morning because it does. you're not going, <laughs> Oh God. Cause I right. know now I'm to the point where um, not that my neck's messed up, but I know that if I let them just hang on to this guillotine and just pull for dear life, I'm, I'm going to feel it the next morning. So I'm just like, all right, tap, right. tap, tap. <laughs> it's not right. worth it. Yeah. You know, I think longevity wise in the sport, you have to have a, you have to silence your ego to a degree. I think ego is good. Um, it can be leveraged positively, uh, because, you know, if you do get tapped by somebody in a guillotine that shouldn't have done it to you that should motivate you to get into the gym, uh, the next day. So I think it can be leveraged positively, but at the same time too, if you're playing the long game, which we all should be, if we want to be really good at a a sport, as skill dense as jujitsu, you have to realize that the training of today can't influence the training of tomorrow negatively. Um, and to, to, to whatever degree you can, manage or mitigate that, that will determine your longevity in the sport. And very rarely do you find somebody that's been doing this a year and is world-class to be world-class. You have to train at a high level for a very long time to train for a very long time at a high level. You have to be healthy. Um, so like, you know, just playing off what you said there, I think it's important that you, uh, you can't get caught up in like, this guy's got me in a guillotine and I'm just going to grit my teeth or bite, you know, bite down on my mouth guard and get through this. You just tap and don't get caught in it the next time. Right. And uh, a quote that I love that I've heard, I heard just recently was from uh, John Danaher. He was on a, uh, I think it was Lex Friedman's podcast. And he was saying that you have to look at training as skill acquisition. It's mm-hmm. nothing more, nothing less. You're just building your skills. So if you get tapped, so what? You know, you just keep exactly. going. You're just working on your skills. And then once it comes to competition, that's when you turn it on. Yes. And, you know, he's obviously a massive wealth of knowledge. Uh, it, it, there's, some, you know, I, I don't come from a grappling background. You know, I've been doing this on four and a half, five years now. And, uh, but I come from, a basketball running background and running's not skill skill dense at all, but basketball is. And a lot of things that people are figuring out in jujitsu. Now people in other sports have known for a very long time. So uh, basketball in particular, there's been a huge uh, wave of skill development trainers that have come into the space. And what I mean by that is 
These are guys that do absolutely nothing with the X's and O's of basketball or girls. They do nothing with the X's and O's of basketball. They're not telling you how to play a two, three zone. They're not telling you how to play defense. What they're work, what they're working with you on is the ball handling skills necessary to be a good player, the shooting mechanics necessary to be a good player. And in a sport, like I keep saying, as skill dense as basketball, your skill is your value, right? Mm -hmm. If you can't play, if you can't handle the ball, if you can't shoot the ball, you basically offer little to no value to your team. Um, what you're, what you see in jujitsu is, and it's turning with the help of people like Danaher. I think, uh, there's, there's a, a, a lot of people out there. John Thomas is a guy that I really like. I think he's got some excellent stuff. Lachlan Giles, I think has a lot of really good stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm missing a ton of people, but, uh, the idea that the skill of jujitsu, the skills needed for jujitsu and you can insert any move in there, any move you want. They need to be fostered and worked on. And what that takes is it takes planning. It takes execution. It takes daily actionable items working towards a goal. And in a lot of, in a lot of cases, that goal should be getting better at a given, a given skill. So like, um, if you, if you want a really good daily Heva guard, if we're talking about the gi, if you want a great daily Heva guard, you need to put together a training plan that every single time you're in the gym, your game is getting better at daily Heva guard. Right. And what a lot of people do. And again, this is specific to jujitsu. Like people in basketball have already figured this out. People in soccer have figured this out a long time ago. Their skill development academies are fantastic. Um, but what people do is they just go in and roll and they just try to play daily Heva guard. It doesn't work like that. Your, your daily Heva guard, if, you, if you've identified it as something that you need to work on, probably isn't robust enough to handle the chaotic nature, the un, uncertainty of rolling. So it'll just get blown apart and you won't actually have any diagnostic ability to determine what's, what's going wrong, what am I not doing, uh, what am I doing, and it just doesn't work. Um, it's not enough to know how a move works and then go try it live unless you're that much better than the person. But like, if you and I roll, you know, something that I don't know very well or haven't used a whole lot, you're just going to blow it up. So, you know, I, I really like, I listened to that podcast as well. I think it did a good job of describing the process of taking something that you first learn or you first identify as needing work. And then how you go about building yourself and building your skill level to eventually hit that on a high level educated opponent. Um, and luckily, like I said, the jujitsu community is starting to open up to this. You know, everything's a system now, everything's systematic. Um, but the rest of the sporting world has already been doing this for a very, very long time. It's just in jujitsu, there's this, this, everybody loves to roll, right? And not enough people like to train rolling isn't training Interesting. Um, and, and, and maybe this is a, a a mindset shift but i'm a strength and conditioning coach that's what i do by trade and right. I'll, I'll create a parallel for you that i think will help you understand this concept okay so and and a lot of this de depends on how you define things so and definitions do matter 
So if we take a look at the word training, and then another common word that people think is a synonym for training, working out or exercising, okay? Working out and exercising as it comes to in the weight room, strength and conditioning is not training, okay? Exercising is going for a walk, maybe going and playing beach volleyball with your friends, going and jumping in a soccer game. It is, the, the volume is, not predetermined. The intensity is not predetermined. It doesn't fit on a sliding scale of your needs analysis based, based, based on what you need. Um, it's non-specific in a lot of ways. Um, it's still good for you. It doesn't have no value, but if you're looking at getting, if you're looking at getting stronger, there's very little value to just picking eight to 10 exercises that you like to do and then just doing them. That's not training. Training is doing a needs analysis. What do I need? Where is my game at? Where is my strength at? And then determining what the lowest hanging fruit for you to get better is. Then based on that, you create a plan, which is a series of actionable items that you can take every session to work towards the goals that you've set out. That is training. Anything other than that is not training. Now, there is a huge amount of value in just flow rolling, for, for instance, or just rolling with your friends, or maybe you're rolling with somebody that's a lot lighter than you or a lot heavier than you, much less experienced, um, much more experienced, right? Like you could swing on either end of the spectrum. If I roll with Lucas Lepree, there's not a whole, unless he lets me, there's not a whole lot that I'm going to be working on Right. right. It's going right. to be survival uh, at the, you know, and that's being really kind. It's barely survival. <laughs> and then if I roll with somebody on their first day, there's also very little that I can work on. Mm -hmm. Right. Because the reactions they're going to give me aren't necessarily realistic. Um, they can be, that's a whole nother discussion, but, you know, specific to jujitsu, they're not going to be, you know, realistic expectations. They're not going to be realistic reactions. So my expectations have to come down a little bit. Um, but that is not training. Training is walking into the gym, getting onto the mat. And again, having a series of actionable items that you can take to get better at something that you've diagnosed needs it. Okay. And I think that's what John is talking about when, when he's talking about training or drilling, mm -hmm. um, drilling a bunch of random movement drills or like, a bunch of drills that you saw somebody do isn't necessarily training just like going into the gym and doing a couple pull-ups here. And, uh, you know, a cool kettlebell swing variation that you saw over here isn't training. It's better than nothing. And over time, you know, you will start to improve on certain things, but the quickest way to get from point A to point B, which is I'm not very good at something to, I am very good at something is to train to get there. So people yeah. put the people throw the word training around way too flippantly. Training to me means exactly what I just described. Um, and that's why I think the DDS squad has been so successful is because you have a lot of these guys not that are not DDS guys that are not training. They're still on the mats a lot. 
They might, they might be rolling for two hours a day, which is a tremendous amount. They might be drilling for another hour a day and, and they're working hard, but you can't confuse working hard with working smart. Working smart is training. It's having right. a plan. I think, I think John and his squad, they're training 100%. They are training. Um, and I think that's the difference in success. Interesting. They're taking, they're, they're ahead of the curve because they're starting to look at other sports and what they've established. And, and I, I totally agree now, whether or not they looked at other sports and that's where they derived the inspiration for that. I'm not sure, but I, I would be surprised if they didn't to some degree. Like if you look at European soccer, European soccer does things right. Australian rugby does things right. Like those guys and girls are at the forefront when it comes to, yes, we're going to train really hard, but we're also going to train really smart. Um, They're at the forefront of that stuff in strength and conditioning and sport. uh, They're absolutely crushing it. Um, basketball is, is another sport that not so recently, but uh, I would say in the last 15 to 20 years has taken off in terms of realizing the ability or realizing the benefit of spending a large portion of your time on skill acquisition. Like, like he mentioned in that podcast, because ultimately at the end of the day, when you go onto the court, all you are is an expression of the skills you have. There's very, very little chance that you're going to do something that you've never done before. Just like when you go into the mat, don't expect to hit stuff you've never hit before against a opponent of equal skill, equal ambition, and trying really hard to do the same thing to you. So I, I think, you know, the, the, the shift has started in jujitsu and I'm excited to see where it goes. Um, I know personally, you know, like when I first started in jujitsu, I had, I again had no background, no grappling background. So like, yes, I could do, I, I knew what an underhook was after my first few months, but I didn't understand the value of the when and the how and the why, Mm -hmm. um, now I do. And in the last year and a half, I've made more strides in my jujitsu than I did in the first three years, um, because I've taken charge of my my learning a little bit. I've, I've researched a ton in the last year and a half or so, and it's deepened my understanding. And then I have a plan every time I go into training that's helped me get better. So I've gotten better in the last year and a half at a significantly faster rate than I did in the first three years, even when I was still improving exponentially. So I think there's definitely something to it. I think that's what you see with the DDS squad. They just do that. And then you see they continuously do that for like six or seven years. And then these guys get really, really good. Correct. And I, f- I find that so interesting that you said that because um, even people who go on to the highest levels still don't understand those little details and that, why am I doing this movement? Why do I want to place my hand here or get this underhook? Right. And when you learn those details early on, those are what could take you to exponential growth. I've noticed. And uh, a question I had was, did you apply this methodology um, uh, when you started uh, jujitsu or is this something you've uh, taken on recently? Uh, I was, 
I would say no, I did not at first. I was a little bit too green to even understand what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I, I came from a running background. I ran cross country and track in high school and college, was relatively successful at doing that. Uh, and if you want, I could take a little side tangent here. You know, we can get, get into it later, but I took a lot of, there's a lot of things that training at a high level in one sport taught me about training in a, at a high level in another sport. So for me, you know, in, in college running 80 miles a week, um, and training with a group of absolute killers, like I lived with two kids that ran sub four minutes in the mile. You know, I was around high level athletes all the time. There were multiple men and women on, on the track teams that I was on at Kentucky that won national championships. And I was around them a lot all day. So I've been around high level athletes, my, you know, basically my whole life. And that has definitely helped me with training in jujitsu. Now to answer your question initially, no, I did not do that. Like I said, I was a little bit too green. I didn't understand grappling at all. I've all, I've always had good instincts. Like I've always had an understanding that like, you know, if I'm in an arm bar, if I roll this way, it tightens it up. So I need to roll the other way. I've had that since day one and that's valuable. You know, it's definitely better to have that than have to learn it the hard way, but I didn't understand big picture stuff in jujitsu, you know, like it's, it's even hard to under, it's even hard to explain now. I just didn't feel comfortable grappling. Yes. I could hit people. I could catch people in triangles, but I didn't understand, um, setups. So I wouldn't actually set anything up. I would just catch people and stuff. Um, that's a huge distinction, right? Setting something up and forcing somebody to move the way you want them to move to ultimately hit the move that you're looking for is way different and much more impressive than just rolling in a big ball, like a tumbleweed. And then you end up in a triangle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the, the goal is the same, right? The, the outcome is the same, but how you got there is wildly different. Yeah. So no, I did not. And it wasn't until, and I've said this a ton of times to people who are new, it took me probably three years to just get enough basic understanding of jujitsu to even start to, to even feel like I could start learning how to do jujitsu. Right. Okay, so if I break that down, you know, uh, I spent a lot, I was 120 pounds when I started jujitsu. So I spent a lot of time on bottom. So I was very, very good at escaping. I was good at surviving stuff. I frustrated a lot of people, but I was not, uh, I was not good on top mainly cause I didn't get there a lot. I didn't spend a lot of time there. So I've worked on that a lot. The, the problem is, is like when I would get on top initially, when I first started out is I didn't understand pressure. So I would just grab people and squeeze them as hard as I could. And then I, you know, I was shocked every time when I got thrown off, I didn't understand that it's, you know, instead of being a plank, you want to be sort of like a wet blanket, right? Where I'm putting my hip on their hip, but my legs are glued to the floor. If they roll, it's okay to let them roll a little bit. As long as I maintain contact with them, these are all concepts that I didn't even, I, I, I had no understanding of, I didn't realize. And then over time, you know, you just start figuring stuff out because if you're on the mat enough, mat time does matter. I started identifying places that I could work on. 
I was like, man, I am getting uh, flipped a ton from the top. So when I do get there, I have no ability to keep somebody there. So then I started asking some people that, uh, you know, I respect their opinion on stuff like this. And they started showing me some stuff and I sort of personalized it. And then as I gained sort of understanding, I feel now that I can learn a lot quicker than I did before. Even though my rate of improvement when I started was probably a lot steeper. Now that I have a general understanding of jujitsu, it's so much easier to isolate, learn, and then reintegrate back into my game. So like one thing I'm working on now is uh, a little sequence, like daily Heva, let like a leg wrap daily Heva mm-hmm. into sort of a K guard and then matrix entrance. That's like my sequence. Now, if you would have showed me that two years ago, there there's no way I would have understood anything you showed me right. um, because I didn't understand daily Heva. So spending so much time in daily Heva, you start to realize like, man, my, my hook is just getting blown apart or they're stepping over my leg. How do I keep that from happening? So you start to research it. I start watching people with good daily Heva guard. I start taking notes. I start putting together a plan. I start writing stuff down. I start watching videos and timestamping stuff that I want to go back to and watch over and over again. And then when I go to the gym, I've started working on this stuff. Like I grab, I grab somebody and I literally do the painstaking work of putting them in daily Heva, having them move around, seeing what I, you know, registering and taking inventory of what I feel and then making adjustments from there. It's not particularly fun. Right. right. The process of doing that is not fun. It's not fun to sit down and watch Lachlan Giles 50-50 guard anthology, whatever it's called. There's like 16 hours of video on there. Right. It's, it's not fun to go through all that stuff. Um, it's not it's not a bad time, but it's not fun to not, it's not as fun as just going and rolling. Right. But the problem is if you think you're going to learn the leg lock game, if you think you're going to learn daily Heva by just rolling, I think you're sadly mistaken. You might learn a couple things, but are you going to be a master of that position? There's no way. Things happen way too fast. Uh, situations evolve and mutate over time. So it's hard to start wrecking. It's hard to recognize patterns. Um, and unless you're getting yourself there in a role, time after time after time. Um, it's like I said, really hard to recognize patterns. You just haven't put the time in to understand that specific position. So continuing the process, I start working on this stuff with people and it's painstaking, right? Like it, like I said, it's not particularly fun, but what you do is you start to gain confidence because you're spending more time in that position. So now that I've worked on it with somebody, my leg wrap daily Heva feels a lot tighter. So next time I go and roll, it's a lot tighter. People can't shed my hook as easily. Now I can start focusing on grips as we're rolling. I start real. I I realize that my, my leg is getting uh, trapped and stepped over and I, or maybe I'm getting leg dragged and flipped. So then I need to address that. I need to research how, how do I keep the person from stiff arming my leg and stepping over it? So it, it evolves over time but it's a constant process of refinement. And now, con- you know, considering where my daily Heva guard was before, it's a heck of a lot better. It's like my A game now. Whereas even six months ago, I didn't even know what I was doing. 
daily heave was like something I just kind of went into because if the person leads with their right or left leg and they kind of have a split stance, it's just natural to lap, uh, to wrap that leg. So I just did it out of almost reflex. Now I actually have a game plan when I'm there. And that, that was only six months. Imagine the what ability, it would be in four years. Exactly. And again, this is what the DDS guys are doing. They're taking something like leg entanglement, like the leg game. And they're doing, they're going through this process with expert eyes on them at all times. They're going through this process of refinement and learning and education over and over and over again for years and years and years. So then when they go and roll with somebody who just occasionally dabbles in that stuff, they absolutely, they beat the piss out of them. It's, it's not even a competition. Um, And until other people start to do that, the result's going to be the same. Now, I'm not saying that I'm as systematic as those guys. I, I, I wouldn't even begin to, I, I can't even wish to, to do it to the level that they're doing. Um, because to a large degree, like I'm taking a lot of charge of my own stuff now. I still learn a ton from some of my main training partners, my coaches. Uh, ultimately, those guys taught me basically everything I know. Mm-hmm. But um I imagine the process is so much faster than I'm even experiencing when you have somebody like John Danaher watching you all the time, giving you feedback daily. Um, And the other thing too, is I can't train full time. I train a lot. I probably train 14 to 16 hours a week, but there's, I'm, I'm not training 20 hours a week. I'm not training professionally. So it's a, it's a little different. And that's why those guys get good so fast. Interesting. And that's, that's something I'm such a big proponent of is, and I'm sure you're like this as well, is um, I never just start a role, just, all right, slap hands and let's go. I have to start in a specific position, depending on what I'm working on. Like for example, right now I'm working on seated guard, butterfly guard. Mm-hmm. I have to start in those positions. And that's where the game starts because I want to see the certain reactions that come out of those positions. And I want to, um, I want to develop those skills in those positions. Yeah. I think, I think that's a, a, a really good thing that you're doing. I, I think positional sparring is really, really important. Um, one thing that has helped me tremendously Um playing off the daily Heva game is I've been working some bear and bolo and crab ride stuff. Mm-hmm. One thing that I've tried to do a good job of is drill things a ton, right? It's good to have good mechanics. So something like a bear and bolo, there's grip sequences. I can do those grip sequences in my sleep now, but that's only half the battle. The second half of the battle is doing it against resistance. Okay. So you have this move and it's, you know what you're doing, but that's with the person allowing you to do it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because then if you take a move, even if you drilled it a bunch, you're not getting like from the barambola. What if someone just pushes your feet off? How do you regain your hooks? If you've never drilled that specific sequence, it's not going to work when you roll. So, I've started grading my exposure to resistance. 
So like I'll drill something until mechanically, I feel like I have good mastery over it. I can do it well, fast, again, a non against a non-resisting opponent. Okay. Then I'll, I'll tell my partner or whoever I'm drilling it with to give me 25% resistance. And then over the next few series of things, I give them feedback on whether it's too much or not enough. Right. So it takes some communication. It takes mm -hmm. a good partner to do this. Mm -hmm. And I notice certain things that they do, things that I'm struggling with. And I continue to drill it at that resistance until I feel like I have the same amount of mastery at that resistance that I did with no resistance. And then I might say, and it might not be these increments, but it might then be something like 50%, then 75%. And what you do is you bridge the gap between drilling something with no resistance and drilling something with 100% resistance. That is huge. And I think that's what you're getting at with positional sparring. Mm -hmm. Positional sparring is a great way to spend time in those positions and get some real reactions, get to, to get some controlled chaos infused into the drilling that you've done so mm -hmm. that your drilling isn't just mechanical grab here, grab here, grab here. You have counters to things. You have reactions. Like if they, one of the biggest things people do when I bear and bolo is they just kick my, they just kick their feet away and it blows up my hooks. Mm -hmm. So what I've had to figure out is how do I retain my hooks? That's one thing. If they do get blown off, how can I reinsert my hooks, keeping my grips and continue the sequence? If you just drill something without resistance, you'll never, or at least slowly, it might, it might happen, but it'll be much slower. It's very hard to take that to a, an opponent of equal skill level of equal education and intelligence and make it work. It's like the litmus test for whether something is working shouldn't be whether you can do it on somebody that's been doing jujitsu for six months. My goal is like, I'll know my Baron Bolo. I'll know my daily Hiva is really good when I can hit it on you routinely whenever I want. Correct. If, it, if it's not like that, then you don't have great mastery over it. Right. And that's the thing that I think people get, um, people get caught up in the most is they see they've hit a move on someone who's relatively new and they're like, okay, I got it. I mastered it. So I can move on to the next thing. No, like I'll like, for example, triangles was something I worked on for like, I would say close to a year, a year and a half, just doing it repetitively, repeatedly, repeatedly. And still to this day, I'm still working on it. And right. I think that's a, uh, it's, it's a little detail that you mentioned that I think people would get a lot of value out of is um, when you're drilling, you're focusing on the mechanics of it. It's not, mm -hmm. you're not just going for numbers. You're not going, all right, no, I'm doing I go by time. Bars. Yeah. I go by time. Time is significantly more effective than repetitions. Correct. And uh, I'm willing to defend that. The reason, at least in a class scenario, now this is ideal scenario. Okay. If you have 60 people on the mat, things can change. If I'm drilling, if it's just you and I, maybe we're drilling at, in a garage or something. Um, or before class or after class, I much prefer time. There's a couple reasons for that. The first is if I'm drilling with somebody who is, who is significantly less experienced than me, which is often the case, 
um, there is a certain annoyance with repetitions that I'm not immune to. And other, I know other people feel this way. So if we're doing five reps of, we'll just continue with the daily heave, a barambolo thing, mm-hmm. daily heave to barambolo to back take to choke, whatever it's a sequence. Mm-hmm. And I can do five reps in a minute or whatever, but it takes somebody else uh, five minutes to do that. That is annoying, right? right. Because then in, and then in, 10 minutes, I'm getting like one and a half series. Mm -hmm. But if you take that same situation and you go, okay, I have three minutes to do this. You have three minutes to do this. Go at your own pace. I can get 10 reps in 15 reps in. They might only get two. That's fine. We've still each spent three minutes on it. So it's interesting. There's some equity there. There's some equality there. Um, that is really important. It keeps, it keeps people from getting frustrated for that, from that. Um, and I, I think time is better too, because if you start thinking about repetitions, I think you start focusing, I think your focus sort, sort of, uh, tends to drift a little bit. If you're going based on time, it doesn't matter how many repetitions you're doing. You can slow down a little bit, at least initially and start working on the mechanics of the move. And then when your three minutes is up, okay. I, I'll just pick up where I left off on the next three minutes or four minutes or five minutes. Mm-hmm. Whereas repetitions, there tends to be this urgency to get them done fast. Right. Especially again, if you know that your partner has three or five repetitions to do, and you can tell they're maybe getting a little bit annoyed that it's taking you forever to do one. Right. It allows you to go through trial and error. It allows you to make mistakes. Um, and also, too, you can you can take a 30-minute or an hour window and guarantee that you're going to get at least 15 to 30 minutes of drilling in. So it's it's just more objective, I would say, than repetitions. Interesting. That went uh, way different than I thought it would go because automatically I'm, I'm thinking the same way you are in that most people, they just want to rush through the move. They want to get it over with quick. But yeah. it's interesting you're, that you brought that up you're not incentivized to do that with time. It's like uh, if you put something in the microwave for a minute, it doesn't matter how anxious, you know, how much you want that minute to go by. It's going to be a minute. There, right. Your, your anxiousness isn't rewarded. There's no incent. There's no incentive to go faster with time. Um, whereas with reps, there is. And uh, I found that to be counterproductive to, to drilling. Interesting. And um, what's your training schedule right now? I know you said you train 14 to 16 hours a week. I try to. So I generally have my, my schedule changes because I do, I do work. So mm-hmm. um, I can be a bit of a pest. I'm sure any, if any of my training partners are watching this, I can be a bit of a pest when it comes to getting on the mats. Cause I always want to be there. Right. I'm always texting people. Hey, do you want to get, do you want to drill them? drill with this or, uh, at this time, do you want to work on this? So I do my best to create my training schedule around my work schedule. Cause I have no other choice. Mm-hmm. So life would be a lot easier if I could just train jujitsu all the time. Right. Um, but, uh, I generally will train at the school that I go to steel city 
martial arts. I will train there Wednesday, Friday mornings. And then there's a Friday open mat that I'll go to because I generally have off on Fridays. And then I'll train Saturday mornings uh, at our sister school, Wright's Gym, under a guy, Dave Clink, who I, I, I think the world of his jujitsu. And that's why I go there. He's a great, he's a good friend and he also has really good stuff. So mm-hmm. uh, I go there. And then Tuesday mornings, I actually go out and train with my buddy Taylor Cahill. Um, sometimes his brother is in there too, Tanner. And they're both division one wrestlers who are getting into MMA and by osmosis, getting into jujitsu and, and expanding their grappling horizon past just wrestling. So I go out there and we wrestle and do a bunch of no stuff. That's been probably the biggest game changer for me over the past six to eight months is I've been going there once, sometimes twice a week and wrestling for two to three hours there. It's helped my game tremendously. Um, so I go out there maybe once a week and then Thursdays I can generally train with my buddy, Rick, who's out in mm-hmm. Beaver. And then I'll also go to class at steel city on Thursday evenings. Sunday is kind of a floater day for me. Uh, sometimes I'll get together with a buddy of mine. Um, and sometimes I'll take that day off. So my training is either five days a week or seven days a week, depending on how lucky I am with training partners or unlucky. Right. Dude, that is insane. You're much like my schedule in that it's all it's all on the fly, depending on what's going on with work. It just if you want to train a lot, I think it almost has to be that way. Um, I'm looking forward to my girlfriend and I are in in it's it's a process here. We're looking at building a house, and you can guarantee that there's going to be mats in my house. Yes, everybody sir. has an open invitation. Uh, and hopefully that will be that will allow me to get some more training in. She also just started doing jujitsu, which, uh-huh. you know, um, I I've tried to pull back how excited I am when I'm around her, but <laughs> I am over the moon excited about her getting into it. Right. Um, because I think she has a lot of talent for it. Um, and, uh, I think us training, like us training together is going to be so cool. Like she's, she's just a, she's just the best. And, you know, anytime I can spend time with her is, is, is a win for me. Is she, does she come from a uh, sports background also? Like, was she an athlete? Yes. She's one of the most self-deprecating people I know when it comes to her athletic background. She was a three-sport athlete in college at the Division three level. Um, basketball, indoor, and outdoor track. Now, indoor and outdoor track might seem, well, I guess she did run cross country too, but she jumped in track. She was a jumper, high jump, long, and triple. Mm-hmm. and sprints and then also ran cross country which athletically physiologically is on the opposite end of the spectrum so it's it's incredibly uh impressive what she's done i mean she was a thousand point scorer in high school for basketball mm-hmm. um and she just has did gymnastics and, and cheerleading when she grew up and is just extremely athletic and has a knack for stuff that is physical so like i'll <laughs> the one day she came to an open mat at a buddy's place and it was her first time doing it. Mm-hmm. And her and I were just rolling around sort of warming up and I put her in an omoplata um, from guard. And before I could grab her pants, she rolled out of it. Not only did the front roll, but she kind of came off to the side and threw my legs to the side and passed me. What? And I was, I mean, of course we were just playing around, but I was like, wow, that doesn't happen. I've been around a ton of people on their first day 
right? Like at Steel City, um, Santino always puts the new guy with me. And, uh, and so I'm always there for like the first, someone's first day, which I love because uh-huh. it, it challenges me as a practitioner because I have to explain things in a, in simple enough terms that they understand it, which is challenging sometimes. So I think it, I think it ultimately makes me a better practitioner, but I've seen a lot of people on their first day and she has a tremendous amount of talent. So it's exciting for me because now I've got a a training partner forever. (laughs) Exactly. Now you can be like, let me show you this Delaheva stuff real quick. Right. And I've already done that stuff. Like, uh, you know, if I'm looking at something like, like, like a leg lock kind of thing, I'll look at something, I'll research it for a little bit. And if she's just sitting on the couch, I'll kind of just like, Hey, can I take 10? Do you have 10 minutes? Like, can I just try this on you? And we'll just do it right on the carpet in our living room. So she's already been exposed to stuff like that. Right. But yeah, I'm super excited about it. I do that to my wife all the time. Like she knows I'm about to lock up a grip I'm, and like I'm locking up a Camor and I'm like, just let me get this real quick. I just, I, I tried to do it today and it just felt funny. Right. She's like, Oh God, stop trying to twist me up. <laughs> you yeah, got to get her on the mats, man. Exactly. Dude, I cannot imagine what your uh, y'all's kids are going to be like. You're going to have the most little, athletic child ever. Little ninjas, man. That's what I'm exactly. looking forward to. <laughs> little Gordon Ryans, dude. <laughs> yeah, like physical, like much smaller Gordon Ryans. Dude, um, that is insane. But yeah, like the my training schedule is uh, molded around my work schedule. But um, like I... I mentioned earlier that my background in running has prepared me for jujitsu. Like I could train another 10 hours a week. No problem. Um, because in college and high school, I was training at a high level the entire time. And when I mean high level, like, like I said, in college, I'm competing with kids that are sub four minute milers that are sec champions. I'm, I'm around them all day. All I know is, is training, right? That kind of mentality. Right. So like for, for people love to talk about jujitsu and the grind and all that stuff. It's not even that much of a grind because I've just been doing it since I was in high school. Even then, even before high school, like my dad's a basketball coach. My uncle's a basketball coach. My grandfather for a profession was a basketball coach. I've been in the gym for six to eight hours, you know, nearly every day. Like I would go to school when I was in like fourth grade, I would come home. I would go to my dad's practice for about three hours, get in the drills with the guys, practice stuff, you know, on the sidelines. Uh, and then I would go to my school practice. So like it's, I, I my background has prepared me for the grind of jujitsu, which I don't even think it's that much of a grind because I'm not training professionally. Like the guy who goes three days a week, it's not a grind, right? right. That's, that, that's not, that's not a grind. So it's, my background has prepared me for training as much as I do. Um, and man, if my, if my schedule could, could allow me to, I would train twice as much as I do. And it puts you at such a, uh, it gives you such a head start as far as mentality goes, because oh, yeah. when you'll see most guys who um, they're starting out, they break mentally so quick. Yes. And when you've been training at that level at such an early age, it gives you such an advantage. Yep. I think 
um, you know, as I start there, there are people come and go, right. People in, in, in the gyms, people that I train with, they come and go. And again, these people aren't professionals, so they, they don't need to be there 24 seven, um, training all the time. Like people have families, uh, people have demanding jobs. I get it. Um, but, uh, one thing is <clears throat> I never, in terms of training, I don't rely on motivation to get stuff done. To me, I schedule it like an appointment. Training jujitsu is an appointment for me every single day that I can, that I can logistically do it. So like if I train two, two or three hours with Taylor wrestling, it's not like, oh man, I'm so I'm so motivated right now. Let me go tomorrow too. No, it's just, I'll see you tomorrow. That's it. it it's, it's not a motivation thing. It's, I want to be good at something and to be good at something, you can't rely on motivation long-term because motivation wanes. That's, that's a huge problem. And especially in the industry that I work in, I've worked with a lot of general pop people where they talk about, I'm just not motivated to go to the gym. I'm not motivated to, to go for a walk or to eat this way. And it's not about motivation. That's, that's the problem. The conversation can stop right there. If, it, if you make it about motivation, you'll have these epic periods of time where you get so much done, you surprise yourself. And think of this in a training context. You know, um, you had a good competition and then the two months after it, you're just an absolute beast in the gym as it, as it pertains to getting in there, training hard. Uh, you have a spectacular two months, but then what happens? Your motivation starts to dip naturally. That happens to everybody. And then, you know, maybe like th three days in a week, you're like, I don't want to go train. So you don't. And then that carries itself for another two months. And then you get these, these natural ebb and flows that happen, um, which to a degree aren't bad. But I think if you make it about discipline more than motivation, you don't have those ebbs and flows in, uh, in training quality. It's something that you do. If you want to be good at it, you have to do it at a high level for a long period of time. You have to do it at whatever level you can sustain for a long period of time. Does that make sense? Dude, that is insane. Like my mind is blown be, right now. It can't be about motivation. And there are a lot of people that talk about this. Nothing that I'm saying is original or mine. But yeah, I, I noticed that again, the profession that I work in, it's it's motivation. The lack of motivation that people feel runs rampant and takes over their life. And listen, I, I'm, you know, there are things in my life that I am unmotivated to do. And because of that, they don't get done. So this is something that is constant. I'm constantly working on constantly refining. Um, and by no means am anywhere near where I should be in terms of efficiency of getting stuff done. But at least when it comes to jujitsu, for me, it's not motivation. And I don't think it ever should be. If you have a goal to be really high level at something, then it has to be discipline based. And that's also an important distinction to make. If your goal is to just do jujitsu for fun, everything we've talked about, like, isn't really that important. Go yeah. and have fun. If your goal is to have fun, go and do what is fun, right? right. Which for most people is going to be, you know, um, talking with their friends the whole time, you know, just going out and 
you know, just rolling, just letting their, their mind kind of wander, forgetting about the world and just, just going and being somewhere showing up. But if your goal is to be high level to whatever degree you're, you think is high level to be as close to your ceiling as you can be, you have to, you can't rely on motivation because you can't miss training sessions. Right. You have to be the guy that's like, okay, I just, I just, I, I was in here on, on Wednesday. I'll see you Thursday after Thursday. Right. I'll see you Friday after Friday. I'll see you Saturday. That's the way it has to be. Right. Um, again, there's a ton of, there's a ton of value to taking time off. There's a ton of value to doing stuff just for fun. Right. Even the highest level people in, in other sports, the people at the highest level, Lionel Messi probably goes out and plays soccer with his kids and he's not, he doesn't have a notebook with him working on stuff, right? He's just playing. I think there's an importance to that. There's an element of importance to just going out and playing, but in a training plan, you factor that stuff in. You might factor in like, I'm a little burnt out from this. I need to go and just see what happens. The idea behind training is that there's a plan. Right. And it's, it's so interesting you said that because it blew my mind because I've, I've even seen that in myself sometimes and that I, I did rely on motivation in, in some points where if I did really good in a tournament, I'll come back and train really hard for like two months. And then I'm like, all right, I'm, uh, I'm just I'm not feeling this for a right. little bit. I feel like I should take some time off, but like when I've started taking more of that approach now and that it's non-negotiable. And that right. I'm going to show up. These are the days I'm going to train and it's non-negotiable. Whatever's going on during that time, it doesn't matter. I'll do those things after or before, but during these times, this is what I'm doing. Yes, it is important. It's, it's important to schedule it in so that you don't give yourself an out. It doesn't matter. Well, I mean, there are, there are a few circumstances I could, conjure up that would make me miss uh, jujitsu, but outside of like work, family, or some other catastrophe, I'm there. Right. Oh, I think you froze up on me. I'm back. You got you good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm good. Okay. Okay. I don't know what happened. It just froze up. I don't know if it was me or you. It says my internet connection is unstable. So we'll, uh, you'll have to let me know going forward. Okay. Yeah. I'll let you know. So you were saying um, ca- uh, catastrophes, anything? Yeah. So motivation, it's, you can capitalize on motivation. Okay. And uh, I joke with my girlfriend all the time that like, I'm just wa- riding a wave of motivation. Don't get in my way. I've got to get this stuff done. Right. Um, and that's fine. You just have to understand that it's not always going to be like that. And you still have to get stuff done, even when you're unmotivated to do so. Again, this is all something that we could work on. This is all something that we will struggle with. I will continue to struggle with this until I'm dead. But it's something that once you understand it and recognize that you're not always going to be motivated to do something, things just become, things become much more objective. I need to get this done. I'm going to get it done. It's not a bit, it's, it, it doesn't hinge on my motivation to get it done. It just does get done. It's a sense um, of self-awareness. It is. You're right. Yeah. It definitely is. Um, but uh, jujitsu has become that for me 
there are days when I go into the gym and I ask myself, why the hell am I doing this? Like, (laughs) it's not that it's not important to me. It's just like, why am I spending so much time doing this? And honestly, to me, that is a form of lack of motivation. I don't really question it that much. I just continue with what I'm doing. And then the next day I, I don't have that thought. I just show up and I'm like, I love this. This is great. Um, There are going to be days where I don't like jujitsu. It's okay. Because there are more days that I do like it than I don't like it. That to me is worth it. Right. Damn, dude. I'm going to take that. Uh, That's, that's going in the bank here. Cause that was, (laughs) that was great info you just put out. Yeah. I think ultimately, you know, again, with my background running, the people that are the best runners do two things. They're genetically blessed and they prepare better than anybody. It, it is nearly impossible in running to go into a race and perform really, really well if you're underprepared. Okay. Not, not every sport is like that, right? Running is mono mono against somebody else. If you show up less than ideal, if you show up unprepared, it will show. There is no, there isn't a teammate that can save you. Time moves at the same speed it always does. So your time will reflect your effort. It will reflect your preparation. It will reflect your mentality. And for me, it's always been a measuring stick of how well I can prepare for something for a race. So jujitsu is the same way. Now there's a little bit more wiggle room in jujitsu because it's skill-based. It's not necessarily all about preparation, but if you make it all about preparation, you get better and you get better at an X, you get exponentially better at jujitsu. There are other sports. There are team sports in which you can show up somewhat unprepared and sort of fake your way through things because maybe you have a good teammate, right? Maybe the sport sort of allows for, hiding for lack Mm -hmm. of a better word running has never running doesn't allow for hiding right if you break in a race things go south very very quickly if your preparation breaks for a period of time your the outcome of the race will let you know it'll be reflected in the outcome of the race so i've always been a preparation guy always and that's how i approach my jujitsu that's crazy, man. And, um, in your profession, um, if you could, um, mm-hmm. let everyone know what you're, what you're currently doing. So I'm a strength and conditioning coach with the Pittsburgh Penguins. Now I don't work with the Pittsburgh Penguins. I'm an employee of the organization. I work with the pens elite, which is, I've heard them referred to as the baby pens, but that's not entirely true. I work with kids of in hockey, they go by birth year. So I work with kids from 2012 birth year all the way to 2003 birth year. So our eight-year-old teams all the way up to our 18U prep teams. Um, And these are what we call tier one hockey players or they're the best of the best in their sports at their ages. The only teams that are harder to make than those teams from my understanding, I'm not a hockey guy. I just told you my whole background. Hockey mm-hmm. isn't a part of it. Right. Um, would be 
uh, like making a youth national team or, you know, making like the 16 U USA national team. Um, and some of our kids do go to camps that eventually pull from the, ta- that you know, eventually aggregate the talent that those teams pull from. So these kids are really, really high level in their respective sports. Um, so myself and two other guys, Jimbo and Jay, we are all, we do all of the off ice training as they call it. We do all of the strength and conditioning in the weight room uh, to get them ready to play hockey at a fairly high level. I, I was lucky enough to see them play with COVID. It was a little bit tough. I got to see our 15 U team play our 14 U team play our 07 team play. And they are extremely high level. This, if you want to talk about skill acquisition, these kids are, it is astonishing at how skilled these kids are at the, at, at such a young age, hockey might be the most skilled dense sport out there. It's it's, there's an argument to be had because it's, like basketball in that there's puck handling, there's shooting, there's an evident parallel between the stick and the puck and your hands in the basketball, right? The difference is in basketball, you've been, you've been working on how to walk, run, jump, and land since you could do that at like one and a half, two years old in hockey, you have to skate. So there's like the puck handling, the shooting, the tactics, the strategy involved in hockey. And then there's the skating, which is how you maneuver on the ice. That's how you move your body through space during your sport. That's like a whole skill in and of itself. There's just so much skill that goes into and is needed to be an elite hockey player. Um, so it's it's been like, I knew these kids were good, but then I, when I watched them, even for somebody that doesn't really understand hockey, I can see like, holy crap, these kids are really high level, really high level. You see that same, um, that same, uh, do you see the parallels between running preparation, running athletes preparation and uh, hockey players uh, preparation? Do you see parallels between the two? There, there are parallels insofar as you must prepare exceptionally well to be good at your sport but they are quite opposite on the spectrum in terms of holistically what the sports represent. Mm -hmm. Running is almost entirely physiological, meaning there's little to no skill acquisition. The way you run is generally the way you run. I'll accept that there are ways that you can improve running economy through running drills but to say that hockey and running are the same in terms of the level of skill needed is unfair and just plain wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, the preparation, like I said, running is an extremely preparation-based sport. You have to prepare. You have to accrue physiological adaptations to express in the race. You have to. You have to do your long runs. You have to do your speed work. If you don't do that stuff – you're going to be slow in hockey. There are there. If you don't prepare, you're not going to skate. Well, you're not going to puck handle. Well, you, you don't get the ice time. So there, there's, there's strategic limit limitations that you won't understand. You don't understand the game as well. So yes, there are parallels, but they are, ex, they're very, very different. I would say. 
did you always know you wanted to be involved in uh, sports in the way that you are now, as far as um, a strength and conditioning coach? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. I think, um, you know, my parents have been coaches since, since I can remember. My dad's been a high school basketball coach for, without doing the math, 35 years. Like I said, my uncle's been a basketball coach for slightly less than that because he's younger. And then my grandpa was a coach as a profession at the collegiate level. So I've just grown up around coaches. That's what, like, when I was young, grade school and even early in high school, like my dad and I had some very mature conversations about some of his players that he had, um, what mental toughness is. Like I I've had those conversations since I was able to understand them. And, um, I think that's always pushed me towards sports because it's what I've known. It's what I've done and it's what I love. Now there's a couple ways you can get involved in sports. You can get involved as a sport coach, um, which I don't necessarily see myself, see myself doing. I don't, um, at least at this time, it's, it's not what I love. Um, there's the medical side of things. I could be an athletic trainer. I could be a physical therapist with a team. I could be a sports doc. Um, or I could enter this field that is sort of emerging and has emerged over the last 15 to 20 years, I'd say, which is strength and conditioning. It gives me, it's offered people another outlet to coach from. So I've kind of moved myself towards that. I thought I wanted to, to, to get into physical therapy. I worked in a physical therapy clinic for two years, realized that I want nothing to do with insurance and that it wasn't for me. Right. Um, I've always been intrigued with training. Like I said, I've, I've always understood the importance of preparation. So I think it was a natural progression to go to sort of the sports performance, strength and conditioning realm. Now, that being said, strength and conditioning is in its relative infancy if you compare that to, say, sport coaching, which has been around for you know, a long, long time. The, the process of being a good sport coach has been refined and refined and refined for a significantly longer period of time than strength and conditioning has, just based on how long they've been around. So I see that personally as an opportunity. I'm sure a lot of people in my profession feel this way, but I feel like a lot of strength and conditioning coaches miss the mark by a lot um, in a, in a lot so? of different ways. Okay. So where to start? I would say that strength and conditioning can be approached in a very objective, systematic way, just like sport coaching. Okay. Unfortunately, most people, when they hear strength and conditioning, they think about a guy with a tucked in shirt, a bald head, sunglasses on with a whistle running around and yelling at people uh, like a crazy person. And because that's largely what they see. Um, and this is the, the people in the football space are largely responsible for this. So I'm going to blame them. <laughs> Um, I don't find that effective. It doesn't mean you can't yell. It doesn't mean you can't have what we call a coach's voice, which is 
generally a, a loud and assertive voice. But most people, when they think strength and conditioning, they think of somebody yelling at another person, just screaming stuff at them, talking about motivation, throwing around like motivational quote, like that's not strength and conditioning. Those people are clowns. I want nothing to do with them. Um, also too, I think that there's this idea that strength and conditioning is responsible for and is essential in player development. So for example, let me, let me refine that a little bit. If a team wins a championship, what percentage do you feel like, let's just say the, uh, who won the Super Bowl this year? The, the Buccaneers. Uh, what percentage of the Buccaneers' success do you think comes down to strength and conditioning? I mean, I would say Tom Brady's accuracy would be the biggest key, but I don't know how right. much strength and conditioning goes into, into that. Correct. Is that physiological right or, or is that something that can be developed? Is accuracy? Well, it's probably both to a degree, but yeah. you're on the right path. I think personally – Strength and conditioning plays a much, much smaller role than much people give themselves credit for. And it ultimately hurts our profession because people overvalue what we do in the weight room and overtrain athletes. Okay. Doesn't mean what we do is not important. Okay. okay. So there's this fine line that you have to walk where am I devaluing the service that I offer, or am I just being realistic about what I can actually accomplish in the weight room? There's this idea that strength training makes you stronger, which makes you better at your sport. And that is not entirely false, but it's also not entirely true. The way I go about strength and conditioning and doesn't matter the context to which to whatever athlete I apply this to, the context doesn't matter because it's the same across the board here. The qualities that you develop in the gym, say strength, something general, strength, explosiveness, power, however you want to define these things, endurance, those give you base, base level qualities, which you can then go express in your sport. Okay. So for example, here's a great example, since everybody loves MMA now. In MMA, conditioning is huge. It is really important to be able to put a pace on somebody that they can't keep up with. There are fighters in the game that have literally weaponized this, okay? Um, maybe not the hottest guy in the world right now, but Tony Ferguson does this to people. Mm -hmm. Nate Diaz does this to people. Dustin Poirier does this to people. Max Holloway does this to people. The list goes on and on. That conditioning isn't built from them sitting on a bike for two hours. Okay. That conditioning isn't built from doing circuits in the weight room. It's not built doing that. That stuff is built by grappling for two hours a day striking for two hours a day for 10 years. That's how that stuff is built. That's how a gas tank is built like that. Now, 
you can improve base level heart function. You can improve your aerobic system holistically by doing stuff like going out and running for an hour, going in and rucking, which is just walking with weights uh, in a backpack. You can go biking and your aerobic system, which is like sort of, for example, the, the underlying system that replenishes energy as you work for a long period of time, you can improve that system. You can give yourself a bigger engine, but ultimately your ability to show and prove conditioning is developed by grappling. It is specific to the sport. So I think a lot of people take credit for conditioning their athletes or improving the strength. So a lot of people take credit for well-conditioned athletes. A lot of strength and conditioning coaches take credit for well-conditioned athletes. Mm-hmm. When in reality, that their conditioning that they've done with them is but a small, small percentage of the actual conditioning that they express in their grappling match, in their MMA fight. So that's, that's something that I think needs to change in our sport, because what happens is these coaches who think that they have this massive level of importance, they overtrain their athletes and ultimately compromise them for their skill sessions, which are far and away unequivocally the most important thing that that person can do to get better at their sport. So those are, that's just a brief snapshot into sort of what frustrates me in this industry in strength and conditioning. Um, Luckily the, the guys I was mentioning before Taylor and Tanner Taylor is actually fighting this Saturday Mm -hmm. in his uh, amateur MMA debut. Um, Strength and conditioning in the MMA scene is are oh. people that are doing it well, but there are a lot, there are a man, a lot of people that are doing it really, really poorly. Luckily, like I said, it's in, it's in its infancy and I am really excited about potentially being an influence on future strength and conditioning coaches in this space to show people, I think, a better way to do things. We're back. Okay. Ask me, that, ask me that question again. So you were saying you hope to be an influence on the future strength and conditioning coaches. What, right. are, you, what are you doing differently that most strength and conditioning as, uh, coaches aren't? I would say I'm simply put, I'm not overtraining my athletes. And that's huge. In MMA, there needs to be a there needs to be a focus, a priority, a tier list created that prioritizes skill training over strength and conditioning work. Unless somebody is so weak that they like it's it would be hard to find a scenario where strength and conditioning work would be more important than skill work. Um, I think most people understand that, but for some reason, there are coaches out there that absolutely kick the shit out of their athletes by making them ride on a bike for two hours or whatever, or, or absolutely blow, you know, blow them up with conditioning work when they also have a wrestling practice that same day for an hour and a half. 
there's, there's no way you can make a wrestling practice easy. <laughs> like even just light drilling wrestling stuff for an hour and a half is, you know, decently hard. So I just think a lot of people overtrain people. They overtrain their athletes. So with that being, with that being said, what do you do to keep yourself from getting burnt out? Because are you following a, uh, a, a strength and conditioning schedule? Me specifically, or are you talking about the athletes that I train? Both. Okay. So if we look at the athletes that I train, um, which isn't a tremendous amount of people currently, uh, there has to be really solid communication between the two of us to make sure that what I'm doing is complementing what they're doing from a skills perspective. So I know everything such as when their hard days are, how hard their hard days are based on what they tell me. I know generally the amount of volume that they're training in a day. Uh, I know generally how they're sleeping every single day based on some subjective questionnaires that I send out every day. I know their mood every day. I know how rested they feel every day. There is really, really good communication between myself and my athletes to make sure that what I'm doing and, and what their sport coaches are doing are moving them forward in the right direction and not destroying them. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, that is huge. Okay. The other thing too is, is I'm realistic about the goals and the environment that my athletes are going to compete in. Taylor's competing in an MMA fight where it's three, two minute rounds. There is absolutely no reason under that time limit. And those with a minute in between each round in that context where Taylor should be doing gassers on a hill or, you know, um, doing intervals on a bike. The guy trains two to three hours a day, minimum every single day. We can get all of our conditioning work out of our skills training that we would actually need to get ready for a fight of that duration and work to rest ratio. Um, I think, I think that's huge. I think a lot of people, you know, they might have a five minute jujitsu match and they train for it. Like they have a 35 minute jujitsu match and you just don't need to do that. It's training time that you could be otherwise using to get better at your skill, which getting better at your skill is ultimately a, a very effective way to get better at your conditioning. The more skilled you are, the less effort it takes to do the same move. The more economical you are in your grappling, which is less energy that you have to expend. So one of the easiest ways to get better at conditioning is to actually just become a better grappler hmm. or a better fighter. So it's like the age old, uh, the age old quote, if you want to get better at jujitsu, just do more jujitsu. 100%. Crazy. Now there is definitely a time and a place to, uh, work on qualities such as your aerobic system, such as power development, strength development outside of the gym or outside of, or off the mats. There is definitely a time and a place for it. That's, that's how I have a job, but I'll give you a, an example here. The idea that the Diaz brothers got good conditioning from doing triathlons. And that's why they're in shape for their 
MMA fights is ridiculous. Those guys genetically are predisposed to having very, very good aerobic systems. It's exactly why you don't see them picking up people and slamming them on their heads. They are aerobic athletes. They are slow twitch athletes, as you'll, you'll hear people refer to them as. They're not the other way around. They're not George St. Pierre. They're not going to pit or, or Rory McDonald. They're not going to pick somebody up and slam, slam them. They do triathlons because they naturally have a predisposition to endurance sports. And does it, does it hurt their endurance? Of course it doesn't. But to say that their endurance in MMA fights is built up doing triathlons is ridiculous. Those guys are grappling or training many, many hours a day doing intense eight to 12 week camps multiple times a year. And they they're notorious for training a lot outside of camps too. That's how they've built their endurance. They were naturally predisposed to it. They train a ton and it's like, yeah, they happen to like triathlons because they were, again, naturally predisposed to it. Um, and I think you get into this cycle. But to say that it's the reason their conditioning is good, I think, is uh, not is not correct. Interesting. And um, what do you uh, what do you do outside of training? Do you do any kind of weight training or strength I do. training? I do, but. Again, similar to what we've talked about, only because I've identified it as something that I stand to gain a lot of benefit from. Uh, like I said, when I was in college, I weighed 120 pounds. Why? Well, because endurance athletes generally need to be at a weight that allows them to perform at a very high level. And it's generally based, it's generally like uh, your strength to weight ratio needs to be really, really good. So you can't be, I'm 5'8". It's hard to be 5'8 and 250 pounds and be good at marathons. Right. And be elite at marathons. Right. It's very, very hard. So you have to have a body that reflects the performance you're looking to produce. Mine did. I was 120 pounds. It's probably 7 to 8% body fat all year round. Um, that's That was normal for me. When I went to jujitsu, I realized that being 120 pounds wasn't particularly effective, right? Okay. It was, and and exactly. not only was I 120 pounds, but I didn't have a extensive, an extensive background of uh, upper body, using my upper body, using my lower body outside of a running context. So I felt that I was not only underweight, but I was weak. I didn't have the strength to do certain things. My grip strength was terrible. So these are all things that I have over the past five years, uh, six years, actually have worked on a lot. So I, I strength train probably three days a week. My sessions are rarely over an hour. If they are, it's about an hour 15. And I am, per, um, particularly focusing on hypertrophy work, gaining lean muscle mass. I weigh about 155 pounds. So I've put on 35 pounds in about six years um, without really increasing the amount of food that I eat. So it has, it's not 35 pounds of muscle. I would look very different than I do now if it was, <laughs> but I, I've done, a, I've done a lot to improve the strength uh, of my body that has improved my grappling. It has improved my ability to grapple, I should say. That's a little bit more specific. I've given myself a better chance to apply techniques that I know. Um, so yeah, my, my 
some of my weightlifting looks like bodybuilding because bodybuilders are the best in the world at gaining mass. If your goal is to gain mass to a degree, you should train like a bodybuilder. Okay. But there are specific things that I do that I think specific to grappling have helped me feel a lot stronger than I probably actually am. Things like uh, one thing over the past eight to 12 months that I've focused on a lot is what I call training the squeeze. So training my ability to squeeze somebody's neck. I do that a couple different ways. I do one of the main ways I do it is by taking a foam roller and I'll lower this so you can see. I put the foam roller in here just as if it was somebody's neck. And instead of latching onto my shoulder, I'll just keep my hand free floating like this. Sometimes I'll make a fist, just depends. Mm -hmm. And I will literally focus on squeezing my bicep, squeezing across, squeezing my hand into my neck as hard as I possibly can for a predetermined number of sets and reps to focus on and work the actual action of squeezing something that has made, that has made squeezing somebody's neck significantly easier. So I, I really like the crucifix position. A lot of the chokes from the crucifix position are one arm chokes, right? On the collar, on the collar or in Nogi, it's like grabbing your opponent's shoulder, right? Right, right, right. It takes, it takes an element of squeeze to finish that choke. I train that. Some people might consider that sport specific training. And I don't think that they're entirely off the mark on that, but I would consider it. Uh, and I'm stealing this off of one of the people that I've learned a ton from Dr. Andrea Ospina. He calls it tissue specific training, which is slightly different. When I squeeze, I have tissue in the bicep, anterior delt, pec, even uh, forearm. I have tissue that has to perform a certain job. Maybe if you're not very good at choking somebody or they're very good at defending, it might be a 30 second squeeze you might need to do before that person taps. You might also need to apply a three second squeeze as hard as you possibly can to deliver the determine uh, to deliver the amount of force necessary to get that person to tap. You can train these qualities in the gym. Okay. And the reason why I don't like, or I'm not satisfied with just drilling more rear naked chokes is a, you can't, you can't for the, for the most part, put a number of sets and reps on that. So like, mm -hmm. yes, if I, if I roll with somebody and choke them three times, that's great. I choke them three times, but then I might go a month without choking somebody three times. So mm -hmm. where's the progress, where's the progressive overload? If you want to get stronger at something, if you want to adapt to anything, you have to give your body a reason to do so doing three chokes in a roll. And then maybe you go two days and don't choke anybody and then do one choke. Like there's, there's no progression built in to actually get your tissue to adapt as acutely as you'd like it to. Now, over time, if you do jujitsu for 10 years, will your squeeze get stronger? Of course. But again, we're talking about training versus working out. Training is a much faster way to get from point A to point B. If you want right. your squeeze to get stronger and tighter, you need to A, work on your chokes to make sure technically you're better. And B, you can train the tissue required to be better at the job you're asking it to do. Right.
Those are Dude. two very effective ways to get better at, for example, choking somebody's neck. That's mind blowing. And um, I like the way you put it in that you didn't just, you don't just do strength training just to do it. You do it right. to, you want it to fit the mold of what a good jiu-jitsu athlete is, is built like yes. and make yourself more goals. effective in jiu-jitsu. I have goals every time. So I have short-term goals and long-term goals. Those goals dictate the pace, the how, the why of what I do in the gym. Okay. So I'm not going in and just being like, I want to do kettlebell swings today. I want to squat today. That's not, that's not how my training sessions go. Notice I'm using the word training. That's a very important distinction. Again, Mm -hmm. everything I do works me towards those goals. Now, sometimes, uh, do I, um, my, my girlfriend's dad who works on lives on a farm and works that farm, uh, got me a tire, just a giant tractor tire. And then also gave me two sledgehammers. One's like 10 pounds and the other's like 20 to 25 pounds. There's something about swinging a sledgehammer. I grew up loving Rocky. Rocky four is like my favorite movie of all time. So I just love swinging a sledgehammer and I just beat the shit out of that tire all the time. Is there a necess- is there necessarily a training outcome I'm looking for by doing that? Not really. I mean, there's some grip benefits to it. There's some rotational power that you can get from that stuff, but ultimately I just like hitting a tire. <laughs> there's really, there's it's nothing more- else. Yeah. There's nothing existent, you know, like existential about it. I just like hitting a tire. That's it. It's so I just do it. It's working out, not training. It's working out. It's not training. Correct. Right. Right. I will go for runs with my girlfriend because she's, you know, I just did a half marathon with her last weekend. Did not train for it at all. Um, that is not training. That's working out. That's exercising. It's not, there's not necessarily a training outcome or goal that I have that that moves me closer towards. And because of that, I can't designate it as training. So there's, there's value to just like, Hey, if you like to go, you know, uh, chop wood, like go chop wood. I don't care. I, I, that's fine. It's better than not doing it. But when I go into the gym, the exercises may change, but they all work me towards a goal. My goal is to get bigger. My goal is to accrue masks. Um, and I have some mobility goals. I'd like to be able to put myself into positions that I can't currently put myself into. So I train towards that, that kind of stuff too. So how do you feel about um, kettlebells? Do you find that to be an effective tool for um, strength and conditioning? That's a great question. I like how you use the word tools or tool because that's exactly what it is. That is like asking a contractor, how do you feel about a sledgehammer? Okay. All right. So if you were the contractor, what would you say? Yeah, obviously I would love a sledgehammer because it helps me do my job. Right. But it depends on the job you're doing. So a sledgehammer is great. If you have to knock out a wall, a sledgehammer is not great when you have to pound or when you have to put screws into drywall. Right. So do I like kettlebells? I do. Depends on the application. Depends on the context. 
when people ask, do I like squats for who, for what, why, how, all of those things need to be taken into account for me to give you an intelligent answer. Squats are great, except if they're not great for you, except if they're not what you need. You know, do you know, does that make sense? Yeah. The, um, go ahead. The uh, the new wave that I'm saying in jiu-jitsu is a lot of athletes like to use kettlebells for strength and conditioning. Right. What do you think about that? I think that a lot of people don't ask themselves the same question or, or think about the answer that I just gave you. Kettlebells can be great, but why are you doing them? Is there's nothing magical about kettlebells that makes them more transferable to jujitsu. Absolutely nothing. And I'd be willing to defend that. Is it something that people pop, you know, if, uh, you know, Tom, the blast says, Hey, kettlebells are great for jujitsu. Are people mm-hmm. going to go out and do them because they think that they magically help them with jujitsu? Of course. Is that the case? It's not Tom, the blast doesn't know what he's talking about. So, um, it's, it's one of those things where it's perpetuated in the community and this happens with everything, right? This happens in basketball where people buy Vertec machines or, you know, buy, buy all this stuff because it's supposed to be basketball specific. Again, think back to our contractor example, a hammer is only as good as the situations in which you need a hammer. That's it. If you don't need a hammer, it is completely useless. How you determine whether you need a hammer or not is based on a needs analysis. It's based on an assessment. Okay. If, if you need to accrue a ton of mass, let's just say you are me, like I was at 120 pounds, but let's say you're only a hundred pounds, you're 25 years old and you want to do jujitsu. It's going to be hard to be a hundred pounds as a guy and do jujitsu. It's going to be very, very hard. I would say you probably need to put on a, a certain level of muscle mass to not only protect yourself because the more mass that you have behind you means the more mass that you can take from other people. Um, but it's also going to make your techniques more effective because you can apply more force in the context of the technique. Kettlebells would not be my first choice. Okay. Wouldn't be my last choice, but it wouldn't be my first choice. There's a lot of inertia. There's a lot of momentum. There's a lot of conservation of momentum used in kettlebells, which things that make an exercise easier. If, if there's a skill to exercise, it is not helping you adapt. And let me pick that apart a little bit. The point of a bench press is not to get better at bench press. The point of a bench press, as I would use it, is to develop certain musculature that works when you're pressing something. So if you're using a bench press just to get better at the bench press, you're missing the forest for the trees or trees for the forest. However, that saying goes, you get the idea, right? Yeah. So all exercises, all tools are subject to the intent that you put on them. That should, that should govern how you use everything in the weight room. Kettlebells can be great, but again, it depends on the context. Barbells can be great, 
But again, it depends on the context. So would a good example be if I'm trying to learn how to, let's say, I want to get good at bridging. So would I do more pull-ups? No. If your bridge in jiu-jitsu feels weak, you need to do two things. Is that what you're talking about? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If your bridge in jiu-jitsu feels weak, or maybe it doesn't work for you, you need to ask yourself two things. One, am I bridging at the right time? <laughs> right? Like go through a technical list of things that could be responsible for your bridging sucking. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because if you bridge at the wrong time, of course it's going to feel weak. It's not going to work. Right. If somebody is in high mount on you, bridging is quite ineffective. Mm-hmm. Make sense? Yes. So am I technically good enough at that skill? If the answer is no, start there. You could also say, I don't feel strong enough to actually do this. Maybe you've ruled out any technical execution errors and I just don't feel strong enough to actually do this movement. Mm -hmm. You could go into the weight room and do a specific exercise to work on your, the actual bridging motion. I don't think that that's, I don't think that you're missing the boat on that. I think that that could actually be a very viable thing for you to do. So maybe use a a barbell and do a hip thrust. Mm -hmm. But most people, if they're honest with themselves, unless they fall and they're like way too big or way too small, most people is going to be technical as execution. I would say. Um, But there's definite benefits to getting holistically stronger in the gym. What I tell people is, Because we know that skill acquisition, we know that grappling is the best way to get better at grappling. Your weight room work should never take take away from your actual skill work, from your grappling. It should never get in the way of it. Meaning on a given training day, I prioritize. Let's say I I know that I'm going to do jujitsu and I know that I'm going to lift in the same day. I will, if I can, try to do jujitsu first doesn't mm-hmm. always work this way. Life's not ideal mm-hmm. because that prioritizes my energy expenditure to work as hard as I can in jujitsu versus lifting. I want to prioritize my skills training over my strength and conditioning. And two, if I have to lift before my strength and uh, if I have to lift before my jujitsu, I will do things Uh, I will still continue with my training plan, but I am not putting myself so far into the hole that I can't have a productive training session on the mat. That is important. Again, keep the priority, the priority for most people. If you want to get better at jujitsu, if that is your goal, then your three days, four days, five days a week of training jujitsu is the number one priority. I would also advise that if you're in the weight room, and you're new, we'll say, or maybe you haven't gone in a while or you, you haven't lifted in a while. You shouldn't work yourself to the point where you're so sore you can't train the next day. This is how things snowball out of control. Somebody doesn't squat for, let's say, with the pandemic. You don't squat for six months. You go back to the gym. You're full of piss and vinegar. You squat five sets of 10 reps close to your 10 rep max. The next day, you can't walk. The day after that, you can walk, but it doesn't look good. 
Three days later, you are still so sore that you can't pull your knee to your chest. You have effectively, you know, taken away from your ability to train jujitsu or grapple those three days. It's not productive. You would have been much better off doing one set of 10 training for those three days, going back into the gym, doing two sets of 10 training for those three days after doing three sets of 10. So you're training in the weight room to me should never, if the goal is jujitsu, if the goal is to look good, things change. If your goals Mm -hmm. change, the process changes. But if your goal is to be really good at jujitsu and get better at that, then you have to make that the priority and your weightlifting complements it. It doesn't get in the way. I see. I see. I think those were, those were the problems I was running into the most was, um, I would go to the gym maybe three, four times a week and Mm -hmm. I would be so burnt out after that. I couldn't do anything for the next two to three days. I would just be smoked by the time I got to the gym. Right. The half marathon I just told you about, uh, that I did this past weekend, I had a blast. My, I was pacing my girlfriend to run 135, which is like 730 pace. Mm-hmm. And I can, I can do that. Like I, again, my whole existence up into this point was basically endurance training. So I, I can pull that out, but I was so sore the next day. My quads were so sore. I physically had to change my gait walking downstairs. Mm. I was hurting. Like, yeah, I, I was actually in a lot of pain. I still did jujitsu, right? I, I took an ibuprofen, which I never do. Right. And I had to warm up for like 30 minutes just to be able to like bend my knees. Mm. So it wasn't ideal. You can't do that consistently. One time it happens, right? You go out and play soccer with your buddies and you haven't run a lot. You're going to be sore the next day. It might impact your training. You should still do that, right? It's fun to go do that stuff every once in a while. But if you are consistently hammering yourself in the weight room to the point where it affects your jujitsu, you're ultimately doing yourself a disservice if your goal is to get better at jujitsu. Interesting. Keep the keep keep your goals the main priority. Interesting. I see how your uh, methodology goes into everything you do. There's definitely some there's definitely some consistency. Right. And again, I think you see the best coaches in the world in jujitsu. They, they are surprisingly simple with how they go about thinking things, right? Thinking about things. So like, there's nothing that John Danaher says that I listen to. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. That's stupid. Everything he says, I'm like, "Hmm, that does make sense. Right. That's very, that's very smart. That's logical. Right. It's realistic. Um, and again, he's, we're just, we've been using his example, him as, as an example. There are a lot of good coaches that people that nobody knows that are doing this exact same thing. Right. Um, but yeah, there's definitely some consistency with the best coaches in the world, the best athletes in the world. They're all doing this stuff. So, so repeat to me again, what your steps are towards evaluating whether you need strength and conditioning? It would be based on an assessment or a needs analysis. Yes, correct. How needs analysis. Right. So how you can go about doing that is simple 
introspection into your game. Do I, what does my game look like? What am I good at? What am I not good at? What can I realistically improve? These are all questions that go into an assessment and needs analysis. If you've been training jujitsu, I'll give you an example here because this, this illustrates my point really well. If you've been training jujitsu for seven to eight years at a very high level, let's just say um, you're not a professional, but you train at a high level. You train six to seven days a week. You train, you know, you have a competition team, you're train, you're traveling to competitions. You would be what I consider a high level athlete. Like you're training at a high level, I should say. And you've never done any strength and conditioning. I would say you would stand to improve. You would stand to see good benefit from implementing a mild strength and conditioning program, simply because you've never done it before. Anything that is novel is potent. So like, think about if something, if you have, if you never drank alcohol before in your life and you drink a couple beers, right? Mm-hmm. Things, I still remember the first time it, things are, you buzz really quick, right? Right. Right. Anything novel is potent. Anything potent in terms of strength and conditioning elicits adaptation. So that would be a person where based on their needs analysis, based on the little bit of information that we've gone over would probably benefit from having a strength and conditioning program. I'll use my buddy Taylor, for example, Taylor has grown up. He's wrestled since he was four wrestling is very strength and conditioning heavy, meaning that in high school and college, there is a great deal of importance placed upon it. Wrestling and conditioning are almost inseparable. If you're in a rest, if you're on a wrestling team, there is almost no way that you're not going to run hills until you puke, be on a bike until you puke, or do something until you puke. Okay. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. In college, he spent a great deal of time in the weight room. I, I might be missing numbers here. He's about 175 pounds. I think he was 185 in college. He could bench press 225 like 20 plus times. Wow. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. When I look at him, when I first initially did my assessment, my needs analysis with him, our strength and conditioning is very, very minimal. Right. It's bare bones stuff. The reason being is how much does his game stand to improve by taking his bench press from 225 for 20 reps to 225 for 30 reps? I mean, it wouldn't make him worse, but does it make him better? I'm not sure it does. It's a subjective question. Does the training time I need to devote to go from 20 reps of 225 to 30 reps of 225, does it take away from his skill development? If it does, we can't have that. And you can look at that from a time perspective or from an energy perspective. So does the training to get better in the weight room, to get stronger and more conditioned, does it take away his energy that he can't then not put towards uh, towards his skill training? Does it take away time to where he has to sacrifice a session with, you know, with his head coach? We can't have those things. So our sessions are quite bare bones. There's some plyometric work in there. There is some strength work in there. People would look at that. People would look at his program and be like, dude, that's it. Right. But it's 
what he needs. So you might look at that and be like, dude, that's not effective. Well, because it's not effective for you because it's not what you need. Right. Not what I need. It's what he needs. So there's a lot. It's not as simple as here's what you need to do. There's a lot of questions that need to go into it. Your assessment should be ongoing. Whether that's every six months, every three months, you reevaluate yourself. Am I, am, is what I'm doing moving me closer towards my goal? If not reevaluate and change things. If it is, keep going. So your assessment is ongoing. Awesome, man. Dude, that was a wealth of knowledge you just gave me. So much, so much knowledge you just dropped right there. I'll probably have to go back and listen to this like three, four times just because that was so much. I'm sure some of it sounds a bit like word vomit. I probably doubled back on a lot of things that I didn't need to, but uh, it's always interesting because these things float around my head all the time. You can ask my girlfriend. I think about very few things. I think about probably four to five things. I think about strength and conditioning. I think about jujitsu in, in grappling. Mm-hmm. I think about fishing because I enjoy to fly. I enjoy fly fishing mm-hmm. and that's about it. Right. And then everything else I think about is just like a small subset of that. Right. There are only a few things that I really, really feel intelligent about or intelligent speaking on. Mm-hmm. And what we talked about today were a few of those. Now, uh, these topics are muddy. Like the, the two, the, not the fishing, the fishing doesn't, I'm not talking about that strength and conditioning in jujitsu. There's so many parallels between them that as you think about this, it is, you're, you're, you're talking about two things that have a tremendous amount of overlap. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I've found that when I have conversations about this with other people, I take for granted a lot of definitions. I take for granted a lot of understanding that I feel the person I'm talking to has or doesn't have. And sometimes that can lead to miscommunication or misunderstanding. Right. Um, So it is difficult to explain this stuff in simple enough terms that everybody can understand it. Ultimately, though, your mastery over a subject is your ability to explain things simply. I'm still working on that. Right. Right. I like I have these conversations in my head all day. (laughs) Um, So to actually put them out into the open is um, it's fun. It really is. I appreciate you giving me a platform to do it. Oh, yeah, of course. And here's the here's the crazy thing. I might be wrong about this stuff. Um, The cool thing is, uh, again, being around my parents, my uncles, my my grandparents, one thing I can say is they've always been willing to change how they feel about things. They've always been willing to, in the face of better information, say, I was wrong. Um, this is how we're doing things from now on. So the stuff that I'm, the stuff that I use with clients, the stuff that I use with athletes that I use on myself is based on my current up-to-date model of how I think things work. Two years from now, I'm going to be very, very different. I know that because things change, opinions change, evidence changes. Um, And it's important to be flexible 
in your understanding of things that you might think you have a good grasp on things now and whatever it is, somebody could come along tomorrow, say one thing to you and completely blow up everything that you know. Right. And I'm totally cool with that. I love that. Right. Um, because otherwise, if you, if you don't have that mindset, you're just going to be an idiot for the rest of your life. You'll just be stuck where you are. Exactly. You'll never grow. Exactly. So I think that, uh, I think that's important too. I don't know everything. I know a lot about a very few, very few things, but I don't exactly. know everything. Exactly. I feel the same way. I don't know a lot, but the things I do know, I know. Right. That's right. Exactly. Well, dude, you do, um, online coaching also. I do. Tell so me I have, that. okay. So I have a, uh, the coaching of the, the company that I run is called reclaim your frame. Um, so I sort of do this on the side of my work with the penguins and I am, I've sort of shifted how I want reclaim your frame to operate over the last six months or so. And most of this has been sparked by working with Taylor, working with Tanner. I really want to get into the MMA into the grappling space. I think I have a lot to offer based on my experience. Um, and my, and my knowledge of the strength and conditioning world. I also think that those people, wrestlers, judo, judoka, um, jujitsu players, I think that they are massively underserviced as well. MMA fighters specifically too. They're massively underserviced in that there are not a lot of people operating in the strength and conditioning space that are knowledgeable compared to say basketball or football or soccer. That being said, there are a lot of people doing a great job out there, but that's sort of where I'm taking reclaim your frame. So I have a program actually in development and it has been in development for a long time because it is a massive project. It's going to be called total control Mm -hmm. and it's going to be a mobility and joint specific training system to actually improve the way you move and it will be directly transferable to jujitsu. Now, I know over the past hour and a half, I spent time telling you that there's nothing in the weight room that you can do that will transfer to jujitsu. Right. Or very little. Okay. There are things, however, though, some of it we alluded to with the squeeze training, the tissue specific mm-hmm. training. Mm-hmm. There is a whole system out there that I think is practically a cheat code to getting better at moving your body and controlling the range of motion that you have, improving the range of motion that you have, and ultimately giving yourself more tools to get the job done on the mat. What total control is, is a 13 week program. I think at the end of the day, it'll be 13 weeks. Once I go through and edit it all, Mm -hmm. it'll be a system to improve the capacities and the capabilities that you have and improve them in a way that is specific to wrestling, to jujitsu. I think it'll be relatively affordable. I'm not going to release any of that stuff now, but I think it'll be relatively affordable. And I think it'll develop or deliver, sorry, a ton of value to a massively underserviced group of people. Um, so if anybody is listening to that and that interests you, I think in the next two months, you will see that out from me. Dude, well, I can't. I'm excited about it. I'm excited about it. I'll definitely be getting this, man. Yeah, I'm excited about it. 
it's, uh, it, it is literally a cheat code. Like if you can improve the way your hip goes into flexion, externally rotates, triangles get better, arm bars get better. Um, your ability to defend single legs and wrestling gets better. All of the, like your scrambling, like all of this stuff gets better because you've given your body more options and more capability to do the specific stuff that your sport is asking you to do. It's right. just, it's that simple. Right. And I yeah. don't think that there's a product on the market that does it as well. Personally, right. I'm biased, of course, but I think it's going to be pretty good. Dude, that is awesome. Well, I can't wait. Tell them, uh, tell them where they can check you out. So you can find me on Instagram at reclaim your frame, all one word. Um, that's sort of my main mode of communication with people. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of Instagram as, as many things as it does, as many negatives as it brings into the world. I think it exponentially over delivers on positives. Um, I think it's a wonderful platform for content sharing, knowledge sharing, um, and that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. Awesome, man. Well, dude, I thank you so much for being on, and I hope to have you back on in the future once the program drops. Yeah, dude, I, I, I can't wait. I'm really excited about it. This is all stuff that I do. This is stuff that high-level guys in the jiu-jitsu scene are already doing. Um mm -hmm. There are a lot of high-level MMA guys that do this. Dustin Poirier's one, for example. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be exciting. I'm excited about it. Dude, that's awesome. Well, dude, I thank you so much for being on. And uh, I appreciate y'all for listening. And I think we're out. Peace. All right. Thanks, Jazz. Peace, buddy. Yeah, man. news for you.